0: Looking beyond that, uh, I think what the Lord's put on our hearts is to study Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. That's a specific period of time in the life of Israel that speaks of building in a solid foundation to your life and rebuilding some things that have torn down. So, uh, you can read ahead. But this morning, our text is Luke chapter 24. We're in verses 36 through 53 as we end the book. The topic of these verses is the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus And our title, 40 Days of Jesus. Luke 24, beginning in verse 6. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. They were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it in in their presence. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the cross to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to pause and pray uh, about the text that we've just read. We do so, Lord, recognizing that we have no ability to understand it or comprehend it. ...in the way that we need to unless you open up our eyes the way you did these believers in the first century. We have no ability or talent in ourselves to teach the word of God. We need you to be here and to administer the gift of teaching. In every way, Lord, we want you to be our focus and our center, our foundation. We want you to be magnified and glorified. If there are people here, Lord, that don't know you in a saving way... We want today to be the day that they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Those of us who do know you, whether it's been for a day or a decade or more, Lord, we want to see something about you that we've never seen before. We want to be touched by your love in a new way, in a, in a lovely way, in a beautiful way. So that when we leave this place, we can fulfill the commission that you gave us, Lord, to be your witnesses. Not out of duty, Lord, but out of devotion, Out of love for others and the joy that you put in our hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody who agreed said, Amen. After his resurrection from the dead, Jesus loved to pop in unannounced on his followers. The women who first went to the tomb found it empty. Jesus suddenly appeared to Mary Magdalene and asked her why she was weeping and who she was seeking. She did not recognize him. She thought he was the gardener. When he spoke her name... Something about it opened her eyes and her understanding and she knew that it was the Lord. Earlier in this chapter, in Luke chapter 24, we saw how Jesus suddenly came alongside two disciples who were walking home on the road to Emmaus. One minute he wasn't there, the next minute he was. And they did not recognize him until after he came into their home. When Jesus blessed and broke bread, something about it opened their eyes and their understanding and they knew that it was the Lord. Another time during this 40 days, seven of the disciples were fishing. They caught nothing all night. In the morning, suddenly Jesus was standing on the shore, but they did not recognize him. He told them to cast their nets on the right side of the ship. They did so and brought in a huge haul of fish. Then their eyes and their understanding were opened, and they knew that it was the Lord. In the verses we've read, Jesus suddenly popped in while the disciples were gathered together talking about him. A week later, he would appear like this again, suddenly through closed doors and present himself to these same men along with Thomas, who initially had been absent and doubted the Lord, and then the Lord comes and shows himself to him again. Now, the emotional effect of these appearances is captured in a strangely beautiful phrase in verse 41, which says, they still did not believe for joy and marveled. It's a way of saying that what they experienced was too good to be true, yet they knew that it was true. It was unbelievably true, if that makes any sense. They believed Jesus was alive and they knew it to be true, but its implications were so fantastic, they overflowed with a supernatural joy. There is certainly a sense in these closing verses of commission and mission. Jesus is commissioning his disciples and giving them their mission. But the real theme of these verses is joy, a supernatural joy that permeates your life because it is almost too good to be true that Jesus is alive. We'll organize our thoughts around these two points. Number one, the joy of knowing Jesus is almost beyond belief. And number two, the joy of showing Jesus is always beyond ability. First of all, in verses 36 through 43, the joy of knowing Jesus is almost beyond belief. When is the last time you considered how really unbelievable it is? That you know Jesus. Not in a sense of doubt, but just the, the, the tremendous unbelievability of it that gives you joy. Here you were born with a sin nature. You committed innumerable sins throughout your lifetime. You were lost and without hope of salvation. Then Jesus revealed himself to you. You realize that he took your place on the cross at Calvary, dying as your sacrifice and substitute. Not any works that you could do or must do, but by faith alone in his work on the cross, you were justified before God and received the forgiveness of your sins. You were born again, and God the Holy Spirit came to live within you. And that was just when you first got saved. That was just the beginning. God gave you gifts so that you could serve him by serving others in his name. Every day he is at work in your life to change you, to become more and more the person you were created to be. And he's promised he will do it until he's done. And one day you will awaken in a glorious afterlife, in a new and perfect body to share eternity with the Lord. It would all be too good to be true if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive. I mean, if you had this offer in tomorrow... If this came through, you'd think it was spam. Have your sins forgiven. Live forever. Click here. There's no way that you would go for that except that you know that Jesus is alive. It's an unbelievably true offer. Now, Jesus had just popped in on the two heading home to Emmaus, surprised by joy, They ran back seven miles to Jerusalem to tell other disciples. When they arrived, they found out that Jesus had popped in on Mary Magdalene and on Peter. And as they spoke, he popped in again. Now as they said these things in verse 36, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. One minute he wasn't there, the next he was. It's a clue to the kind of body Jesus has. And we're interested in his body because we too will be raised in that kind of body. It's real, it's physical, but it doesn't seem to be restricted by the normal physical laws of our universe. All throughout this 40-day period, if you look at all of the different references to it in the Gospels, Jesus is popping in and out on people. One minute he's there, he's not there, the next minute he's there. Whether he can walk through walls or through closed doors, we don't know. And I've read all kinds of wild, you know, uh, analyses on, on molecular structure and things like that. No one knows what they're talking about. All I know is that he has some kind of a body that defies the physical laws of this universe. He's able to move at lightning fast speeds and appear and disappear, but in a real physical body he says hey i'm no ghost i'm not a spirit i have flesh i have bones and you and i are going to be raised in that kind of body now jesus words are what i want to concentrate on in verse 36 because they're so precious here was a group of people who included those who had fled and abandoned him after the garden of gethsemane when they came to arrest him It included one who had denied him three times. That would be Peter. All of them were in hiding from fear. None of them believed that he was alive up to this point. Jesus intended to set them all immediately at ease and he said, peace to you. First of all, he had made peace with God for them and the whole human race. Is there anybody in your life that you don't like running into because there's something not right between you and them? An argument, you owe them money, uh, whatever it is. I mean, I, it, from time to time, there's always, you know, there seems like there's an... an and, you know, you know, you're at the store and it's like, oops, and you're just, you know, I don't need this today, you know, I just got to get out of here. Or, you know, maybe with your spouse and you're in the, the mall and all of a sudden, follow me, follow me, follow me now, and and... <laughs> I'll explain later, you know, and, and, and sometimes now I've never done that. Of course, you know, I just have heard stories about it. And then you wonder, has that person, did they make eye contact? Did they see me first? Are they avoiding me? And, and, and so you've got this because there's, there's something there. And, and for these disciples, Jesus, the first thing out of his mouth is peace to you. There's nothing between you and God anymore. You can come directly into the presence of God. You don't need to hide your eyes. You don't need to shield your face. You don't need to do anything except have a relation with God through me. He was at peace with them, having forgiven them their sins. I don't know about you, but I would have wondered what Jesus thought of me. You know, all this talk about him being raised from the dead and being alive. Hey, that sounds great, except that I fled from him. I denied him. I'd been locked behind a door. I didn't believe it was going to happen. What's Jesus going to think about that? You know how you feel when somebody's disloyal to you, when they don't stand with you, when something's happening in your life and they just step back and they say, well, let's see how this is all going to work out. Oh, yeah, I was there for you the whole time. Liar. And so Jesus says, peace. There's, I, don't, there's, I don't have any of that animosity towards you. And they could experience the peace of God both now and forever. Though they were frightened uh, and reasonably so, Jesus is telling them, his first words are, Hey, you can calm down. Everything is all right. Now, this piece didn't immediately sink in, verse 37. They were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. Some organizations that rate movies for parents have a category called jump scenes, they are scenes in the movie that might make you jump out of your seat. And uh, some people don't like movies like that. And I don't particularly like movies like that. But every now and then I'm in a movie and it's like, whoa! And it's just something happens. Oh, some kind of bug or, you know, something comes around the corner or whatever it is that just you're afraid of. And it's just that jump scene. Jesus' sudden appearance was a real-life jump scene for those gathered together. Hey, you know, we're... <laughs> We just got, yeah, yeah, you guys catch your breath. The Lord's appeared to Peter and he appeared to Mary. Yeah, he appeared to us also. Peace to you. Whoa. <laughs> Jesus is right there in the middle. No knock. Hey, um, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll let me in, I'll come in and eat honeycomb. Um, none of that. <laughs> just, he's just there to them and they jumped and I can understand that. So verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? "...behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, hand and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have." When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, you have any food?" So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence." How patient and gentle are the ways of Jesus with his disciples. He allows for their sincere fears, and he overcomes them with simple fellowship. He, he recognizes that they're afraid, and he says, uh, You know, it's really me, guys. If you want to, you can touch me. I've got hands and feet and, and, and all that. He goes, he goes, Hey, I know a sure way. Let's, let's just relax and eat. You got any honeycomb? Got some fish? Now, this is not the post-resurrection diet. You know, and and I only mention that because Christians are all over these kinds of things. You know, got to be, you know, got to follow the diet of the Old Testament. This is why Moses lived so long, because he ate this and didn't eat, you know, that kind of a thing. And Christians are always looking for the the right Christian diet. And this will be, uh, you know, if you want to get into this and fool your, next time your friends come up to you and say, hey, we're following a biblical diet. So am I. I only eat broiled fish and honeycomb. That's what Jesus ate after his resurrection. I mean, what could be better than that? Uh, it, he, now, as far as I can tell, he didn't need this because it's tough being raised from the dead. Uh, I mean, he, he it's, it wasn't hungry. He just really wants to sit down and eat with them just to spend time with them. And so, uh, and I like this. I think we're going to, I know we're going to be able to eat in heaven. Uh, and we're going to, I think, this is my theory. I don't think we're going to have to eat in order to sustain life. That would be a weird kind of eternal life, wouldn't it? What happened to Gene? Oh, he's anorexic. You know, he just, he's not eating right. You know, he needs nutrients or something. He's on a heavenly IV. I don't think you'll have to eat, but you'll get to eat. And uh, lady after first service, she goes, you think they'll have Krispy Kreme donuts in heaven? I'm thinking, what? She goes, well, I'm a diabetic and I don't get to eat all that kind of stuff, you know. And I'm, I, for one, I'm excited because most of you know by now that I'm an extremely picky eater. There's a lot of stuff that you seem to enjoy somehow that I, I can't imagine, you know, and I think I'll enjoy it in heaven. Mushrooms. There's no kind of mushroom or mushroom flavoring or anything to do with even mushroom designs. I don't, I mean, mushrooms make me want to vomit. I just can't imagine eating a mushroom. And people always say, you know, they say, Hey, you know, how would you like some? I go, no, I don't like mushrooms. Oh, you'll like my mushrooms. No, I won't. I'm not eating them, you know. Olives. I don't like olives. I like olive oil. Yeah, I know. I'm Italian. I like olive oil. I don't like olives. And so people, you know, they put olives in things where olives don't belong. That's okay. I pick them out. I can, I, you know, there's just... So there's all this kind of food that I don't like to eat, but I watch other people. Sushi. There are some people who like to eat raw fish. I just, I don't understand it, but I'm thinking, okay... Uh, I'll do it in heaven and and so I'm looking forward to I actually am looking forward to that and uh, but in the meantime back to our text (laughs) it was 40 days of Jesus the Lord popped in on them to spend time with them it's the same today the meal you share with him is always in his word and he uses it just as he did here to teach and encourage and exhort and here's something I'd like you to just consider. Even though Jesus is always with you. If you're a Christian, the Lord, he promised to never leave you or forsake you. His Holy Spirit indwells you. He's omnipresent. Oh, he's, I love those omni words, don't you? you? know, Omnipresent. It sounds so spiritual. But I mean, it's not suggesting that Jesus is ever away from you. But at the same time, I think you can still enjoy pop-ins from time to time. I know that there are times for me when I'm studying God's word where the Lord will suddenly open my eyes to something about him that I've never seen before. It can be something simple. It doesn't have to be extremely uh, deep. But, and, and I feel like the Lord is right there with me. There's a sense of that excitement. And I believe many of you, I've, I hope all of you who are Christians have had that experience in God's word. I know that if, maybe not in God's, but in other areas of your giftedness. Maybe you have a gift for hospitality or giving or mercy or some of these other things. Lots of gifts in the New Testament. More than 30 of them that are labeled, and I'm sure many more that God gives us. And those of you who are gifted in a certain way, all of a sudden you, you, you know, something will come to you. An idea or a way of doing things and, and a ministry that God wants to give you. And it's really like Jesus popping in on your life. And I believe that the Lord is honored and glorified. He loves to do that. He, in, a, in, a, in a physical way, in the New Testament, in the first century for these 40 days, but I think he still does it in a spiritual way. Now in verses 44 through 53, we see joy of showing Jesus is always beyond ability. Jesus was commissioning them to send them on a mission. They would start in Jerusalem and go to all nations preaching repentance and the remission of sins. They were to do it as witnesses. They were to go about showing people the things that they had experienced and received. And by the way, it's kind of remarkable that they would start in Jerusalem. I mean, we take this for granted, but the people in Jerusalem had just recently killed Jesus. Uh, They didn't like the disciples. And Jesus says, hey, you're going to start right where you live. You're going to start right here and move out from that radius. And and I think it is a, a good exhortation to us, when we first get saved... We sometimes want to get the cart before the horse. And the Lord says, hey, you need to go back right where I've saved you from, right into your home, right into your neighborhood, right into your current job uh, and and all of these things. Because there's a unique period of time when you're going to have changed from darkness to light, from death to life, where people who've watched you and known you for days or months or years are going to see this extraordinary change in your life. And be drawn to that. And either you'll be, as the Bible says, a fragrance of life to them. They'll be drawn to it. Or you'll be a fragrance of death. They'll be repelled from it. But they'll know that God is alive. And so they started right there. However, Jesus said you can't do it at all without being endued with power. And you have to wait for that. In other words, the joy of showing Jesus was and is beyond natural ability. And then he said to them, verse 44, These are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Now these guys and gals, they knew the Scriptures. They had large portions of the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms memorized. And by that's just a Jewish summary for what we call the Old Testament. Jesus opened their understanding to the full meaning of Scripture by revealing himself as the subject of Scripture. And so that tells me that when we teach God's Word, it better have a lot to do with Jesus and who he is. And then when we study for ourselves, we'd better be looking for Jesus in its pages. Let's say, for example, you get a love letter from your beloved your fiancé or your spouse, they are in some faraway place for some reason and you're, you're missing them. When they write, you probably are interested in the geography they describe or the climate or the history or the kind of currency that they use or the language that's being spoken there. But you're really only interested in them incidentally in terms of how they affect the person that you love. Too often, I believe that when I read the Bible, I concentrate on incidentals, and I forget to really look for Jesus. And it's easy to do. And so, for example, um, there's there's a, I think, pretty kind of a common feeling among Christians, Bible believers, that certain people who know the Greek language and the Hebrew language, they're just way more spiritual than you are. Because they know... What the words mean, these are the words that you know were written and Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and you know you get all these and and, and you get all this in the Bible study about in the Greek it means a, a, ooh, ah, and you know and they 're pronouncing it, and they 're telling you like i don 't even know english verb tenses i 'll be, I'll be honest with you, uh, and then they talk about in the in the post reflexive anti Nicene text you know it says this in this reflexive verb tense, and you 're like okay and what they're trying to do is tell you that this can only mean this all the time no matter what and after a while you start to think well i'm going to have to i got to get tutorial greek on my computer i have to learn greek to know what i'm talking about i have to learn hebrew and and and, and i get all into the language now is it good to know the language sure absolutely we want to know with accuracy what's being said don't get me wrong but I can get so deep into that kind of stuff, I don't even know where Jesus is anymore. I don't know what's going on with the Lord because I'm worried about what this particular word might mean. And one thing, I'll give you a clue. Some of these guys disagree with each other. And that always blows my mind. I have thousands of books. And sometimes, you know, you'll hear a Bible study where it says, and this guy's name means the beloved one. Well, yeah, that's what... That's what this guy says, but the other guy says, no, no, his name means I was left outside when I was born or something like that. And, and you're like, what oh, man, they don't even know what the names mean half of the time. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against scholarship, even though I'm not a scholar. I think it's a great thing, and I'd like to know more and learn more, and, and I've been trying to do that my whole life. But I think you follow me. You're interested in the letter Because of the person that it's about and what is happening in their experience. You might need to know some of the language. You might need to know some of the geography. But it's all incidental. And you should only learn as much of that as you absolutely need to know to bring Jesus into focus. So that, that you see him. And so in verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written... And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and mission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. This phrase, thus it is written, it's an assurance available only to Bible-believing Christians. You can be absolutely certain by many infallible proofs the Bible is the Word of God. Jesus summarized the Old Testament when he said, It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Right at the very beginning, God promised to send someone to redeem and save lost mankind. And as you follow that story through the Old Testament, you learn that that someone would need to suffer by taking the place of men and women who deserve judgment and death, but that he would triumph over judgment and death by being raised from the dead. And there's a sense in which... Though the Old Testament goes in many different directions and tells many different stories, the one story that runs through it all is that the Savior is going to be born. He's going to suffer and die and rise from the dead. So, for example, we're going to start Wednesday night uh, getting into the books of First and Second Samuel, and we're going to talk about the life of David. The the life of David is the line through which the Messiah was born into the world. That's the most important thing to know about David. But God says, okay, while I'm telling you about David, why don't I expand a little bit right here so that not only you can know the overall plan, but I'll tell you a little bit about how I work in the life of a man of God, how I make a man of God. And you can learn some lessons along the way. But don't forget that the major theme is my son, Jesus Christ and how he's going to come and die and rise from the dead and save you from your sins. And that's how we want to look at this, because that's how Jesus taught us to look at it. Now then he sets the stage for all the New Testament by saying, repentance and remissions of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And as you begin with the book of Acts... That's exactly what occurred and is still occurring. It's the story of repentance and remission of sins being preached. And in all these little cities like Ephesus and the region of Galatia and all of that, while the apostles were doing that, other issues rose up that might be of interest to you. And so they wrote epistles. But really the focus of it was that Jesus has risen from the dead and is coming again. And people need to repent so that they can receive the remission of their sins. At the heart of all of this is that believers are to be witnesses. God's plan to spread this good news is that you and I should show it to be true in and through our everyday lives. How does that happen? It happens because we're not the ones really living our lives. The Lord's living through us. He says in verse 49 Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power. From on high, the promise of my Father is a reference to God, the Holy Spirit, coming upon them to endue them with heavenly power. These guys could do nothing of any real significance without this empowering. Now, think about it for a minute. They were definitely saved. They were born again because, in the Gospel of John, during the same time. Jesus says that he breathed upon them and they received the Holy Spirit. So they were saved and born again. And Jesus had opened up their understanding of Scripture, given them phenomenal Bible studies. But without this further experience with the Holy Spirit, the Lord said, you cannot be my witnesses. There's nothing you can do with all of that natural ability and everything that I've done until you get this empowering Christians must constantly be aware of the danger that having begun in the spirit, we want to continue by our own efforts and in our own energies. Vance Havner once marked that people don't come to Jesus at the end of our argument, but as a result of our testimony. And so I'm not saying that it's wrong to study or to hone your skills in sharing your faith or to learn to defend your faith. We want to do all of that. Everything has its place. But what I'm saying is that your confidence is in receiving power from God, not in your own always limited abilities. Men and women do not come to know Jesus because of our knowledge and skill. They come because of our love for them flowing out of a life of joy from knowing the Lord. And sometimes we begin to replace this just fundamental love and joy with all of this other stuff that we add to our life and we try and argue people into the kingdom of God. A lot of times people will come and they'll say, hey, I have a friend who is uh, or who does this and I want to know exactly what to tell them about that. That's fine. I think that's good. But chances are that's not the biggest issue in their life. Chances are the fact that they're a homosexual or or that they're suffering this or going through that is not the thing that once you prove to them how God feels about it, they're going to say, oh, I never saw that before. There needs to be a fundamental connection in the sense that they know that you love them. And not only you love them, but that there is something so supernaturally joyous about your life that they can't deny that God is alive. That they can, they look at you and they think... I don't want to believe this because it's almost too good to be true. But I see something in your life and you're sitting there thinking, man, I don't know what that is. I don't have any idea what that is because I am a bozo, you know, and and you just know. Or you can sit there and think, well, yes, of course, because I've parsed the Greek and I, you know, have shared with you five points of the gospel that are exactly the points you need to realize that Christ has risen from the dead and stuff. I mean, you know, it just it doesn't really work that way. And so in verse 50, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Now this is the ascension of Jesus Christ. Luke knows that he's going to write another account of the ascension in the opening chapter of the book of Acts, and so he just gives you another here at the end of his gospel to whet your appetite to read volume 2. His focus here is on the condition of the disciples left behind, and he says of them... They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. If you're the kind of person who likes formulas for how to live the Christian life, here's a, a great one and a simple one to follow in these closing verses. First of all, you read that Jesus has blessed you. Think of it as a summary of the multitude of promises and blessings that belong to you as a Christian. And so Jesus is risen from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, and he says, I'm blessing you. And when you read the Bible, you see all these innumerable promises blessings that God has pronounced upon you. As a result, you worship him. You're drawn into his presence and you worship him. Then you go back to where you live and filled with great joy, and then every chance you get... You go to where you can pray and bless God together with other believers. And as you praise and bless God, you realize again how much Jesus has blessed you. And it all continues to repeat itself over and over again. That's why when we gather together to study God's word, we have an emphasis on worship. Whether you want to sing or not, we don't care. We give an atmosphere in which God is being worshipped. doesn't matter really the music we're using or the style or any of that. It's just a place where there is genuine worship. And you can be led into the presence of God. We give you that. And when we talk about the Lord, hopefully, as much as we are... Led by the Spirit, we talk about what God has done for you. Look how God has blessed you. Look what God has done for you. How he saved you. How he loves you. How he's drawn you. How he keeps you. All of these things. I'm not interested at all at what you need to do for God. Because if you know what God has done for you, you'll be falling all over each other trying to do things for God. There's a sense in which we should never really have to talk about money or servants or anything else. Sure, we, yeah, we need, this is what's happening if you want to volunteer. We could use some people over here. This is the state of the church. Those things are fine, but you understand what I mean? Church is not a place where we're trying to exhort people to, to do things for God. If we want people to do things for God, they need to know what God has done for them. If you're not going to respond from love, then you shouldn't respond at all. Because God wants you to respond out of love and out of a pure heart. And so it, it's humanly impossible to always stay on that track because I'm the biggest bozo of all. But the goal, at least, in all that we say and do is to show you how much Jesus loves you. And, and you should just, in, maybe not openly, but in your heart, you should just weep every time you realize that what the Lord has done for you. Where would you and I be? If it wasn't for Jesus Christ. I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't have a daughter. I wouldn't have a son. I wouldn't be looking forward to a granddaughter. I wouldn't be looking forward to a daughter enough. My life would be terrible. It would be the worst thing that is imaginable. Because I remember what it was. I thought it was cool. But it wasn't. It was terrible. It was awful. It was evil. It was positively evil. And I was a pretty nice guy. I didn't eat olives or mushrooms, but I was okay. And, this is, and, and if you can't look back at your life and cry, not, not, you know, not forcing yourself, not to have a, a, an experience, but if you can't understand that, there is nothing I or anyone else can say that will make you volunteer to serve the Lord or open your wallet a little bit larger or any of those things. It has to come from the Lord. And so we want to concentrate on what God has done for you. Now, back into our our topic here, we've had an admiration for natural talent and abilities in others. The NFL's in the middle of playoffs, or so I'm told, (laughs) for the Super Bowl. Some of you admire the amazing on-the-field exploits of these athletes. Maybe football or sports is not your thing. You admire great acting or singing or musical ability or oratory or something else. Superstars in those fields exist because of our innate admiration for their natural talents and abilities. And I'm, I'm, Hey man, that is, I can watch a football game or a baseball game or listen to, you know, uh, something being sung or reads. I am mean, like, man, this is fantastic. I, and I can even wish that I had that kind of talent and, and it can, I could actually even inspire me to a certain extent, but you need to ignore all of that. When it comes to Christianity, natural talents and abilities can be a hindrance rather than a help. While all of us should always be learning more and studying hard, our real impact on individuals and on society is from showing them the extraordinary effect Jesus has upon an ordinary life. It is from being a witness 24 hours a day of what life is like knowing that Jesus Christ is alive. The joy of showing Jesus is always beyond our ability, it will always require power from heaven. And I, for one, am glad because I can offer my meager talents and abilities to the Lord and trust he will use me in spite of them. You know, there are really only a few talented people in the whole world. I mean, think about it. Uh, You know, whatever world you're thinking of, whether it's music or singing or acting or sports, I mean, there's a very few talented people. I mean, I know all of you that have little kids think your kid is the next, you know, Uh, Henry Aaron or or Barry Bonds or something. But maybe one kid uh, every decade is going to get to the majors or the minors from Hanford. Okay? I mean, there are only really a very few talented people. Uh, I mean, really super talented people. You and I are not them. I'm, I'm being very honest. And I'm okay with that. Because God doesn't really need my talents and abilities. There's a scripture that says this. There's not many uh, that are are, are rich and famous and all this. God doesn't need us to have those talents and abilities. He just needs us to love Him. And to be in love with Him. And to overflow with joy. So that the people we are around look at us and say, uh, That I need. But it's not what, it's who. It's Jesus Christ. It may sound odd, and I don't want to confuse anyone, but there's a sense in which we should remain believers who find it hard to believe for joy and marvel at what Jesus has done because the joy of knowing Jesus is almost beyond belief. If you're a Christian, Jesus has blessed you. You should worship Him. Everything else follows from those two things. If something seems out of whack in your walk, start there. Your earthly circumstances may be blocking out your understanding of blessing. You have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, and so set your affections higher on the things above until you are flooded with joy. If you're not yet saved, then you're a sinner and you're in need of saving before it becomes too late for you. Where else but in Jesus are you going to find the remission of your sins and eternal life? The answer is nowhere. Why not then repent of them, agreeing with God that you're a sinner, calling upon Him to save you, It is the greatest pop-in of all time. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. They're too high for us. They're too heavenly for us. And yet you bring them down and you put them before us in a way that we can begin to understand and meditate upon and desire. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ that, Lord, we would return to a place of joy unspeakable and full of glory. Peter talks about it in one of his epistles. And not something that we generate in ourselves. Not a happiness that depends on the happenings of our life or our circumstances. But a joy because we were going to die and go to hell and now we're on our way to heaven. And you're keeping us and working in our lives and moving in and through them. Using us and blessing us. And Lord, until we get in touch with that again, I pray that we would just camp right there and, and, and ask for your blessings. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that's not a Christian, and I know there is, there always is. I pray that right now they would think about where they're going to find the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, that you would show them that it's nowhere if it's not in Jesus Christ. And as we close, I pray that they would come forward, Lord, meet with the men who are here. And that they would give their lives to Jesus Christ. That they would pray to receive you as their Savior. And that you would come in and flood them with the joy of knowing you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Please stand together. Praise the Lord. If uh, if you've never been here before, this is your first time, or you've been here a few times and never got a first contact packet, come forward. The guys will grab one. Yeah, there's a couple. And they'll give it to you. Uh, If you've been here for a while and you just want the free beverage shame on you maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior I know that there's a handful of people here it's not that I don't recognize you but there's always people who aren't really born again you can have your sins forgiven today right now and I would I would urge you I would beg and plead with you to come forward and to talk to the guys just say look I don't think I'm a Christian I don't know if I died tonight if I'd go to heaven And I want that assurance. It seems like Pastor Gene has a confidence, and you guys have a confidence that Jesus is really alive and that your sins are forgiven. And the answer is yes, we do, and you can have that too. Maybe you're a Christian and you just need prayer this morning. We would love to pray with you and for you. May God bless and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen.